Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This episode, we talk with Liam Mather, Head of Public Affairs and Communications at WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Reporting to the Chief Marketing Officer, Liam helps guide WPIC's public and government affairs, strategic communications, media engagement, corporate branding, and sales enablement. Liam previously worked in BCW's corporate and public affairs practice in Beijing, where he helped clients manage reputations, respond to crises, and navigate policy issues. This episode is centered around the fact that Liam had the very unique opportunity to work within the Olympic bubble at this year's event in Beijing. We discuss his personal experiences in the bubble, his thoughts on how the games were run, the level of interest the games garnered inside China, who were the stars of this year's Olympics, the state of Chinese hockey, both the women's and the men's, given that was the focus of Liam's coverage, and lastly, what the lasting impact will be of the Olympics on winter sports in China. Enjoy. Person you're referencing is Eileen Gu, who was definitely the star in China. And I, I mean, she already has more than 20 brand partnerships. And I think that number is only going to increase now that she's got two gold medals. Every night I would watch CCTV5 in the hotel. And I noticed in one commercial break, she was in ads for four different brands, like just in one commercial break in between segments, one ad after another for different brands. And she was the spokesperson. So, and this, this was all done before she was a gold medalist and she's only 18. So I think she was the star of the games. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Liam, welcome to the show. Good to have you on, bud. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be on the program. All right. Quick introduction to yourself and how you and your path ended up to be in China. So I've been in Beijing for almost five years now. First came to China to work at, at a debate league, a high school debate league. So in high school and university in Canada, I participated in debate as like an extracurricular activity where you have like a topic and two teams arguing about different sides of the topic. And through a friend in the university debating circuit, I learned of this company based in Beijing that runs a nationwide debate league for high school students in China. And the debate league is, takes place in English. So students have the opportunity to work on their English language skills, uh, their critical thinking. So I came to Beijing to be a manager of that league. And it was a really great job to have coming to China for the first time because almost every week during the school year, I was going on trips to different cities throughout China where we would host competitions. Um, and so over those two years, I visited about 30 different cities uh, across China um, and got to meet with young people and sort of hear their perspectives on, on different global issues. So that was, was a really fun job. And then after doing that for two years, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the business in China. So I moved to a, a global PR firm who was working with 
multinational companies on some of their public affairs and government affairs strategies strategies in China, uh, some crisis management, some more routine comms work. I did that for for almost two years, and then just through playing hockey in Beijing, uh, like in a recreational hockey league, I met Jacob Cook, who's the co-founder and CEO of WPIC Marketing and Technologies, and he told me that. Uh, you know, WPIC was looking to add someone to their marketing team with a bit of a PR background. And so that's how I ended up at WPIC. I've been here for about a year and that's been, uh, that's been a lot of fun. I'm very curious and I have to ask this debating in China. Can you talk about debating in China and what is that like? Is it, is it, all done in one language? Is there a simultaneous translator in, in the room? You know, do you, is it even cross language? Is that possible to debate in cross language? I'm so fascinated to hear more about debate in China. There's actually a pretty robust, uh, robust communities that, that do debate in China, both in Chinese and English, and both at the university and the high school levels. So the debate that I was involved in was English language high school debate. So all the students that would attend our competitions, they were only speaking English. Um, and it was actually kind of gave you a remarkable window into the like sort of penetration of English in China, because a lot of our tournaments were in second and third tier cities uh, and would often have students from public schools attending our tournaments. And they, they were able to give you know, five minute speeches in English on a relatively complicated topic, like a social issue or a um, with some international issue that, that was being debated about. So I think generally we would be attracting some of the top students in each city to the tournament, but uh, it was definitely very impressive to see these students uh, debating at such a young age in their second language. Okay, over to public affairs and communications at WPIC. Please talk a little bit about the work that you're normally doing uh, that involves public affairs and communications for WPIC. Sure. So I think the way I distill it is. I'm trying to tell the story of the enormous opportunity that exists in China for foreign brands. Uh, and then the second part of that story is how working with WPIC is the best way for brands to tap into this opportunity. So most, most of our 300 employees in China are, are Chinese nationals and they're working on client services. So they're actually executing the strategies of bringing a foreign brand to market in China, running their e-commerce store, running their marketing operations, um, running their logistics. So my job as part of the marketing team is to tell the story of the amazing work that they are doing to prospective clients of WPIC. You ended up and you were in the Olympic bubble, which is really, really cool. Uh, obviously a very unique place, something that obviously doesn't happen every Olympics. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the Olympic bubble first. Sure, sure. So it's sort of a story where all the stars aligned. Um, basically, my dad is a sports broadcaster in Canada. He found out in, I'd say, October of 2021 that he'd be coming to Beijing to work on the hockey broadcast uh, of the Olympics. Now, because of the pandemic, we haven't seen each other since September 2019. So we hadn't seen each other for that long. Sort of set up this kind of tragic semi reunion where he would be coming to Beijing, but because of the bubble, we wouldn't actually be able to like see each other. We could maybe see each other through the fence or like through a window um, with me being on the outside of the bubble and him being inside. But 
we wouldn't have been able to embrace or, you know, spend any, any real time together. Um, and then there's kind of the cards fell in a certain way that I was able to come into the bubble and work on his broadcast team. Uh, one of the people working on his team dropped out in the winter and luckily enough, their role is called being a spotter. Um, and it's, it's more of a support role and on hockey broadcasts, really the only qualification is familiarity with hockey. So a lot of people sort of cracking into the broadcasting industry might, might do this role. Um, and so my dad put my name forward and said that there's like a locally based person who's very familiar with hockey. And from me growing up, spending time at his work, you know, I'm kind of familiar with how sports broadcasts work. And so, um, I ended up being hired by the broadcast team to be a spotter and WPIC was, was very flexible in allowing me to do this. Uh, you know, Jacob's a big hockey fan and he knows I haven't seen my family in a long time. So he was very supportive of, of me taking this opportunity. And I mean, I just feel so fortunate that it all worked out and so much uncertainty in advance about if the reunion would happen. Like if my dad would be able to successfully enter China, you needed to test negative for COVID twice right before departure. Um, and there were a lot of like logistics that needed to be worked out on both sides. Um, but we ended up, you know, having our hotel rooms side by side, spent every day together for two weeks, uh, working on the Olympics, uh, Olympics hockey broadcast. It was a pretty amazing experience. Good for you, man. I'm happy for you. That sounds great. Not a lot of good stories, you know, coming out of the world over the last uh, two or three years. That's a good one. And I'm happy for you. I'm really glad that <laughs> oh, you, got to, you got to have that. That sounds, sounds really cool. It's very heartwarming. So, uh, yeah, that's, thanks, that's thanks. great. And thanks a lot for sharing with that, uh, sharing that with us and, and you for know, sure. with me and the audience. I appreciate that. So, I, I do want to get your impressions of that Olympic experience. Let's start with how you thought the event went from a planning and execution perspective. And I think that is a weighty question, just given all of the extra hurdles that would it, it would have taken to pull off an Olympics in this global environment we're in right now. My impression is very positive. I think it was like an enormously impressive organizational feat. I, mean, I think we have to start from the premise that China has maintained is a very strict approach to containing COVID. So if you're traveling into China from abroad, you normally need to quarantine for two or more weeks. Uh, as a consequence of that, there's, there hasn't been that much community transmission of the virus within China. Uh, obviously, hosting the Olympics, it's, it's not feasible to have the athletes and the delegations quarantine for several weeks before competing. Um, and so they built this bubble uh, to reduce the spread of, of COVID from within the bubble to the wider population. Uh, even though you were required to be vaccinated and test negative before arrival, it's not like a, um, a fail-safe system of, of preventing COVID from getting into the bubble. So, so there were some cases, uh, but the way the bubble was constructed, it did succeed at preventing COVID from spreading into the wider population in Beijing. Um, so I think that's uh, that's pretty impressive. And then even the policies to contain COVID within the bubble held up pretty strong. There were there were almost seventy thousand people in the bubble at the at the peak, about five thousand athletes and sixty thousand workers. And in total, over the two two and a bit weeks, there were only five hundred positive tests, and by the end, there were no new daily cases. So the rules they had about testing and mask wearing and 
and isolation if you tested positive, ultimately contained uh, COVID within the bubble. So just from that perspective alone, I think the games were are an organizational success. Uh, and in terms of the experience within the bubble, um, I mean, I honestly thought it was, was pretty positive. Um, I guess one thing that might not be clear to like outside observers is that the bubble consists of several hotels and venues spread out within Beijing, but also the surrounding mountain areas. Um, and each of these venues and hotels sort of walled in from the city, uh, like literally walls were built around each hotel and, uh, um, and each venue just to sort of block contact with the rest of the city. And then all of these little islands of the bubble were connected by designated cars and bus and train services. So that kind of makes getting around a little bit complicated, but I thought it was very easy to navigate for participants. Even if you didn't speak Chinese, it, could, it was very easy to figure out which, which bus to take or which train to take. And they were running all the time. Um, and you had relative freedom to move around between these venues. So my dad and I were able to go watch uh, other events during our time off. We caught some figure skating, um, some skiing, some snowboarding. Uh, so yeah, it was like pretty easy to navigate the the bubble once you were in. Um, the staff, you know, even though they were dressed in personal protective equipment, and that that can be a little bit off putting, but I thought everyone was super friendly. The volunteers were especially friendly, uh, and yeah. So I'd say it was it was you know definitely a successful event from an organizational perspective. It contained COVID, uh, and despite all these restrictions that were in place to ensure that COVID didn't spread, it was still a pretty positive experience. I think that's probably the number one marker, given the environment that it was that the games were run in, that you would have to start with when evaluating the success of the Olympics was and, and just the sheer magnitude and what could possibly have gone wrong and how badly yeah. that could have looked or been to get that to get that part right, to keep everybody safe, to have them be able to come compete against their peers, the best of best in the world, and then be able to go home safely. That had to be priorities one through 10. And it's right. good to hear that they they did that well. I think after that, everything else had to be gravy, honestly. And I think a lot of people need to realize that that at the end of the day had to be the most important thing that they got to do what they wanted to do. They've spent all those years training. It was pulled off. A lot of other countries might have canceled. They didn't. They pulled it off and it was successful from a safety point of view. What more could right. you ask for? Yeah, that's certainly certainly my perspective. All right. What about some impressions of now the Olympic experience? How would you rate the interest in the games inside China? Meaning how interested was the general populace of China in what was going on in Beijing during those two weeks? How interested in the games were they? I would say very high, very, very high. I saw some data that in the first week of the games, there were 600 million Chinese who, who watched some events on television. And according to the IOC, even though ratings were down in North America, this was the most viewed Winter Olympics ever. Yeah, but let's remember, there was a time zone problem. Oh, right. But I think like the, that just goes to show you how, how huge the, the, the games were in China. Like the fact that you have so many hundreds of millions of people tuning in. Um, and, and because of that contribution, making it one of the most viewed, viewed games ever. I think like the narrative uh, in the West 
is that the games were less popular. And I think a lar- large part of that was the time zone or maybe changing habits around watching, uh, watching TV. But here, I would say they were super popular. You had all these events happening in the time zone. Uh, the first week of the Olympics coincided with the Chinese New Year holiday. So people had time off during the day to watch. Um, and then there's also some data which says it was the most digitally engaged Olympics. So you had tons of people you know, watching online or commenting about it on social media. And in China, that was especially the case. I mean, the major events of the games were constantly trending on Weibo. Uh, the major Twitter-like microblogging platform in China. Um, Every day, you know, the top 10 top trending uh, things, several of them were related to the Olympics. Whenever China succeeded at the games, like athletically, that was often the top trending item on Weibo. So my sense is that interest in the games was very high in China, even though uh, only some local spectators were allowed in to watch. So most people were not able to go watch, but I would say interest was still very, very high. Let's be honest. It was a wonderful distraction from, you know, the world and from COVID during that time uh, that I thought a lot of people would have been pretty eager to uh, to involve themselves in. Uh, it's it's always a wonderful time of year to to cheer and support um, yeah. and see everybody come together. So, um, again, can't can't thank China enough for for really kind of putting it together, pulling it off uh, and and, uh, and giving us, you know, just about everything that we're used to getting uh, when the games and, and at a time when we really needed it most, to be honest. Who were the stars of the Olympics in China? I know, I know there's one name you're going to absolutely have to mention because uh, she was phenomenal. But, you know, who are some of the stars in the Olympics for, for China? Sure. Well, I think the person you're referencing is Eileen Gu, who was definitely the star in China. Um, so she won gold in the skiing big air and half pipe and then silver in the slope style. So a solid three, three metal hall. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt when you have the kind of looks and, you know, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, not only the, the camera loves her, but the microphone loves her. Um, and you know, she's such a good person. Um, it's just like, come on. God, like, did you have to get everybody like that one person so much? Can I have just a little bit of that for me? But yeah, she was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's uh, definitely got like a lot of features that make her almost like a perfect celebrity and brand spokesperson in China. Um, I mean, first of all, she, she was born in the United States, raised in the United States, but chose to represent China at these games. And I think that touched a lot of Chinese people. Um, who sets her pride in being Chinese. She's also an amazing student. She's got like a near perfect SAT score. Um, so that, that appeals to sort of, I, I would say, I would say parents of, of young people in China, the fact that she's kind of like a role model for, for their kids. Uh, she also meets these kind of Eurocentric beauty standards that exist in China. Um, so I, I, after, and obviously she's an incredible freestyle skier. So after her first gold, um, like it crashed Weibo. We both literally crashed because so many people were searching your name. Um, and I, I mean, she already has more than 20 brand partnerships. And I think that number is only going to increase now that she's got two little medals. And, uh, you know, every night I would watch uh, CCTV five in the hotel, which is the, the sports channel in China. And I noticed in one commercial break, she was in ads for four different brands, like just in one commercial break uh, in between segments, just add one ad after another for different brands. And she was the spokesperson. 
So, and this, this was all done before she was a gold medalist and she's only 18. So I think, yeah, she's definitely the, she was the star of the games, but there were a lot of other stars as well. Like China actually set a record for gold medals um, at a winter games with nine, right? like a Chinese record. That was an all time high for China. Um, and a lot of those gold medalists won for the first time. So there's a lot of new household names in China. Another one worth mentioning is uh, Sui Ming. He, he won silver in the snowboarding slope style, but then followed that up with a gold in the snowboarding big air. And, and he's a nice story for several reasons. Um, he, he was 17 when he was competing. He just turned 18. But um, he's, he's, I guess, one, one thing about Eileen Gu is she you know, grew up in the United States uh, in a very privileged family. So her story isn't that relatable for, for most Chinese people. It might be aspirational. Uh, and she certainly um, seems to embrace her Chineseness. But I think her story is just not that relatable for the average family in mainland China. But uh, Sui Ming, on the other hand, was born and raised in Jilin, a, a second tier city in, in northeast China, um, apparently is from sort of a middle class family and is just a, a, an incredible snowboarder. And he's also got a pretty cool, down to earth kind of genuine vibe about him, kind of like a, a, a badass vibe. But he's also very articulate. Um, and so I think I, I was reading his gold medal had over 1 billion views on Weibo. People were so excited um, to see him win. So that's another sort of household name. And I think the combination of Eileen Gu and Sui Ming having so much success in uh, skiing and snowboarding will just be a huge boon for those sports in China. I mean, they're such cool sports. Uh, like they're, they're so like inherently cool watching people go down the hill and do these crazy tricks. And so I think uh, them two will give a, give a huge boost to skiing and snowboarding in China couple other stars worth mentioning. I mean, the, the flag bearers for the closing ceremony were uh, Xu Mangtao and, and Gao Tingyu. So they won gold in the skiing aerials and uh, the speed skating 500 meter short track. So, I mean, the, the, the two of them were pretty popular as well. Um, another nice story on the final night of the Olympics, um, the Chinese pairs figure skating uh, tandem of, of Hans Hong and Sui Wenjing, they won, they won gold. Um, and it was pretty dramatic. They led after the short program. And so then going into the, the free skate, which was on the last night of the Olympics, they were the last pair to skate. Uh, and they ended up winning gold by like the thinnest of margins. Um, and, and you know, I, it, they had like a beautiful, uh, beautiful performance. It like moved to the CCTV commentator to tears and it was the top trending thing on Weibo. Um, and it's a nice story because they actually lost gold in 2018 by the thinnest of margins. And then they were able to come back on home soil um, and win in Beijing. And because it was the last night of the Olympics, this was one of the last medal events. So by winning gold, um, they moved China's gold medal tally from eight to ninth, uh, from eight to nine. Um, that moved them ahead of the United States, which, which finished the Olympics with, with eight gold medals. Um, and, and into third overall in the, in the total like gold, gold medal rankings. Um, so that was kind of nice. It kind of reminded me, and it's not exactly the same, but in, in 2010 in Vancouver, when Canada, Canada's men's hockey team won gold to set that new record of, of 14 gold medals uh, on the last day of the games, it kind of reminded me of that, where it was kind of like the last medal opportunity on home soil in this, uh, 
you know, very photogenic, uh, Paris figure skating team took home the gold. So that was awesome. Um, and then I, the one final person I, I'd be remiss not to mention is actually not a Chinese athlete. It's a Japanese athlete, Yuzuru Hanyu, who's a, uh, a men's singles figure skater. He won the gold in 2014 and 2018. Um, and he's for, for a while now, he's been beloved by Chinese figure skating fans. Like he's attained kind of true idol status in, in China, in like the kind of China celebrity world. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, kind of interesting as a, as a Japanese athlete to have that type of following in China. Um, he's also, he's also got sort of, um, an effeminate and androgynous style. So that's sort of, it kind of raises some interesting analysis about like beauty standards in China and, and things like that. Um, but when he didn't even end up winning a medal in these games, he kind of narrowly fell to fourth, um, but was still sort of, um, really embraced by Chinese fans. Like people in Beijing gathered outside the figure skating venue on the days he was competing with signs and, and stuff to cheer him on, even though most people couldn't go in and watch. So that was, that was sort of interesting. So he's, he, he was another one of the uh, stars of the games. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a good list. Thank you for that. I wanted to also ask you about the state of Chinese hockey in particular, because I know that that's, you know, a sport that you were focusing on with some of the work you were doing in the bubble. You also play hockey yourself in China and you have a lot of relationships with players and coaches and that you were also able to catch every one of the women's games. So can I ask you to maybe spend some focus on how the sport is going for the women's side as well as the state of Chinese hockey in particular? Sure, sure. Well, maybe just to focus first on like the on ice performance of the teams. So the women's team picked up two wins in in round robin play against Denmark and Japan. Um, and during both those games, I mean, hockey was in the top ten to trending things on, on Weibo. It seemed to generally generate a lot of focus. Um, and on the women's team, I mean, the captain is Chinese born. Uh, a couple of their other key players are Chinese born. So much was made before the Olympics about how many of the players on both teams were uh, so-called heritage players, people from North America who have Chinese uh, ancestry, um, but who are not Chinese citizens suiting up for the team. But I think on the women's team in particular, there were pretty significant contributions made from Chinese born players. Um, and so I'd say the, the women's team is actually pretty impressive. They, they played really well as a team, really skilled players. They, they actually qualified for the Vancouver Olympics by right in 2010 and, and won a game then. So, uh, yeah, there's certainly women's hockey seems to be in, in a stronger position in terms of like international competitiveness. Um, the men, I didn't have an opportunity to see any of the men's games in person, but I think they outplayed expectations uh, in the round robin. They um, kind of got blown out in the first game by the U.S. 8 nothing. Um, but then in their next game against Germany, they only lost 3-2 to two, um, and kept it a close game. And, and, and there were... And this might not seem like a huge achievement to a casual sort of uh, listener, but I mean, Germany won gold, won, won silver in the 2018 Olympics, which also didn't feature NHL players. So um, they're a pretty solid team. And um, there was a lot of sort of commentary before these games that the men's team, the Chinese men's team might not even score a single goal in the Olympics. And then in their second game, they scored two against Germany and kept it a close game. And then in their third game against Canada, they lost 7-2, but the first period was actually very close. 
And the fact that they put up two goals against Canada, I think is a noteworthy accomplishment. But just like the women's team, they, they did generate a bit of attention on Chinese social media. I think people understood that, um, you know, the amount of resources needed to develop a internationally competitive hockey program are, are very high and you need a long period of time for the, to, to kind of reap the fruits of that. So I think people were kind of understanding um, and yet still proud of the performance of those teams. So, so that was neat to watch. Um, in terms of like the state of hockey more broadly in China, I think before the Olympics, you saw a very significant growth in hockey participation and, and hockey infrastructure. So I have some data like in 2015, which was the year that Beijing won the game games bid. There were 200 ice hockey rinks and now there are 900, which is a pretty massive increase that that actually makes China one of the, the top countries in the world uh, for number of ice rinks. Um, and just five years ago, there were about a thousand players in China, according to the double IHF, but now there are 13,000. So efforts by the, by the government to promote ice hockey ever since they, they won the Olympics bid uh, seven years ago, I think have been pretty successful at increasing participation, making the game more visible, making the game more popular. And I think the Olympics are only going to give a bigger boost to that. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic about the, the, the state of hockey in China. I think it's uh, some of my friends who are, who are coaches, you know, they're, they're adopting like the top international standards set by, you know, hockey Canada or USA hockey for, for coaching, for coaching young players. Um, they're frequently sending, you know, teenagers to go play in competitive junior leagues um, or, or, you know, it, maybe even at the college level in the U S. So I think there is a, you know, it's going to be a slow process to make China like really a top hockey country. And I'm not sure if or when they'll get there, but definitely I think the trajectory is, is upward and it's a, a positive outlook for hockey in China. Were there any sports or events that surprised you that took the, the bubble or the Olympics by storm. I'm very curious just to give you a bit of an open-ended option here to talk about some of the things like, like what sports were surprising and it could be, you know, both on the positive and the negative, like what, what sports were really well attended or had a lot of enthusiasm or a lot of excitement around them, you know, either to your surprise or far and above what you expected to end up being surprising uh both on uh, you know and then you know just from from sports from participation from from impact from performance of the athletes anything like that open-ended uh, that's a great question you know i'm not i'm not sure if i was like overly surprised by any one sport or event but i guess what would jump out at me is just you know traditionally china has had success in speed skating, especially short track and, and, and figure skating. But beyond that, not too much success at the Winter Games. But I think what, what stood out in these Olympics is their success on the slopes. Like, uh, I, I think like the skiing and snowboarding medals were, were uh, really took the country by storm. Um, and I think Eileen Gu was projected to, to medal several times, but the fact that they got several medals beyond her, I think is significant. And there was just so much chatter about, about skiing and snowboarding online. Uh, skiing and snowboarding have become more popular in China in the last couple of years, kind of as part of that government initiative to encourage winter sports participation. But 
I, I have like a, a sense just from my, my Chinese friends and from looking at uh, WeChat and, and Weibo that these sports are just, just going to explode in popularity coming out of these Olympics. Um, there's now like kind of a physical infrastructure in place for, for skiing. Um, China has like the most indoor ski resorts in the world. And um, had the number of like resorts on mountains has also gone up very significantly in the, in the, in the last few years. And I think coming out of the Olympics, people are just going to be so eager to try. You see, you've seen so many news, news reports about, you know, people trying skiing, skiing for the first time as the Olympics were going on. So I, I think, I think that's one of the, one of the stories of these games for sure. Were there any stories that you thought were actually pretty big in China, deservedly so, that maybe didn't really get picked up in the news in the West that you can kind of divulge to us that we maybe didn't get or didn't hit the big headlines as much as they maybe should have that were important in Chinese society and culture, given how long you've been there, your your understanding of Mandarin, the whole thing, you know, that were important for Chinese society and culture um, that will be important for Chinese society and culture, even for the years to come. You know, your role is PA and comms. So what were you picking up there that most of us might not have? I, I think I'd bring it back to your question about the popularity of the games in China. I, I've noticed that there's been a narrative in Western media that ratings are down and that the games had a joyless atmosphere because of the restrictions associated with the bubble. And because there weren't that many fans. It sounds like you're talking about the New York Times. I don't know. It just seems <laughs> well, I, like it. <laughs> I mean, they're not alone. They're not alone with pushing that narrative. And yeah, I understand where that's coming from. Because if you're sort of parachuted into China for the Olympics, you have experience at other Olympics in the past, which are much less restrictive um, and are packed and the stadiums are packed with fans. Uh, and you can kind of explore the city that the Olympics is taking place in. Um, I understand that coming to Beijing and, and living within all these restrictions and seeing all the people in, in PPE uh, and having to do all these tests, like I understand that it would, it would give you a sense of sort of maybe an uncomfortable feeling. Um, and ratings objectively were down in the West. So I understand how that narrative sort of takes form. But I think the opposite is true in China. I think these were a hugely joyful games, even though most people couldn't come and watch. Just to give like a couple of, of examples, so you have the, the record viewership numbers from within China. You have a record number of gold medals for Chinese athletes at the Winter Olympics. You have the huge popularity of the mascot being Duan Duan. And maybe there was some Western media coverage of the mascot, but it went viral. Like you, you couldn't buy little figurines or little plush toys of, of the mascot. They had to put the factories coming out of the Chinese New Year break into overdrive to crank out enough of these plush toys to meet the demand. And it was objectively like a pretty cute mascot that kind of did goofy things and had all these cute animations with it. So I got the sense that, you know, coming out of these Olympics, a lot of Chinese people would feel pride and joy about how they went. And China finished third in the ranking of, of gold medals behind Norway and Germany. So I think there's one thing that was being pushed by the IOC about hosting the games in Beijing is that this was an opportunity to make China into a winter sports nation. And I think that might already be the case with, with how they performed at the games. So I think the narrative in the West has a lot of validity to it in terms of there being no fans and ratings being down in, um, in Canada and the United States. But here, ratings were up. Interest was up. People really loved the mascot. People were so proud that Chinese athletes had a record setting Olympics. 
So that's, uh, that's sort of how I would, how I would view things. Now that the games are done, what do you think are going to be the lasting impacts on winter sports in China going forward? I get just to reiterate, I think it's, there's been sort of the physical infrastructure put in place in the lead up of the games, building of rinks, building of ski resorts, uh, and then some of that soft infrastructure, like bringing in overseas coaches who, who then train local coaches. And I think there was already an uptick in participation prior to the games, but I think the games and the amount of visibility they add and the success of Chinese athletes in these winter sports will, will only fuel participation. Now people will, you know, look to take advantage of that, that physical infrastructure and that soft infrastructure that's been put in place for, for, for winter sports. So I think we're going to see China in the future be like a, a strong winter sports nation, just like it's been such a strong country at the, at the summer games. Yeah, I think everything is everything is there now. The Olympics, I think, have also brought and elevated not just the interest in it, but also brought a lot of the needed infrastructure for it to be enjoyed. And I hope now uh, we get to see that a lot of Chinese are interested, motivated, incentivized and are now have the capability to be able to go and and to be a big part of winter sports like we are in in Canada and obviously Norway um, yeah. to to really you know take advantage of this and uh, I mean you know look out world if they if they really grab hold of this they've certainly got the climate for it and they've yeah. certainly got everything to, that only God can give you to to be able to 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 have sheer success in the numbers and the whole thing it's all there so yeah i mean i i think that uh you know look out world uh, we'll we'll see what happens in 4 years but uh it, it might be yeah. uh you know they they might be everywhere uh in every sport dominating uh pretty soon so thanks again i really appreciate that that was an amazing dive uh, a very unique inside baseball look into what the olympics were like by somebody who was actually inside the bubble uh, and covering uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. So really, really appreciate you coming on. No, thanks, Todd. Wanted to ask maybe one more thing. Who might be a couple of guests that you think you would even like to listen to or that our listeners might want to hear on this show? Uh, maybe you could drop a couple names in here for us. Sure. I've got one one name in mind. His name is uh, Curtis Drax. He's the He's been involved in ice hockey at all levels in China for, for over a decade. He's originally from, from Southern Ontario. And he's, he's actually the commissioner of the, uh, the beer league that we play in. But he, he has a company called Can Life. They run a lot of uh, hockey-related events and programs uh, for both adults and, and young people. And he's, he's done a lot of different work with the NHL over the years and um, running a youth hockey club. So he's really got... Uh, a really like experience informed um, understanding of of youth hockey in China, and he's sort of my go to person for for knowledge about about hockey in China. So I definitely recommend him on the podcast. He's also got some some great stories about um, some hockey dignitaries he's met over the years who have who have come to Beijing. So yeah, I definitely recommend him. All right. Well, we will take you up on that and ask you to connect us. And then uh, maybe if you get a chance, give him a little jab in the side to uh, to come on the show. We'd love to talk to him. Liam Mather, Public Affairs and Communications at WPIC. Thanks very much for coming on the show, man. That was great. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. Growing a company is hard. 
Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.